an initiative to try to improve conditions for farm workers on and off the tomato field. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Luis Hernandez is out today. Students at Florida Atlantic University are demanding that the fast food chains that come to campus agree to more ethical labor practices for how they get their ingredients. We look at protests to help the people who farm the tomatoes for your burger. But first, the first round of election results are in in Colombia. We'll catch up on Latin America headlines with WLRN's Tim Paget. And finally, it's Wildlife Thursday. We'll take a closer look at, well, some of the wildlife that you probably encounter most in your daily life. We're talking about mosquitoes. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. This program is made possible in part with support from the Miami Cancer Institute. Welcome to Sundial and WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Luis Hernandez is out today. Many thought Colombia was close to electing its first leftist president, but a 77-year-old populist conservative could disrupt things. The South American nation has been a stronghold of conservative Latin American politics for a long time now. And now leftist Senator Gustavo Petro has made it to the second round of a presidential election with momentum seemingly shifting in his favor in recent months. But is that momentum now moving in the direction of his runoff rival, Rodolfo Hernandez? What could the election results mean for the people of Colombia and for the people of South Florida? And in other Latin American news, the Biden administration is gearing up to host a summit of the Americas in Los Angeles next week. And U.S. policy towards leftist countries is in the spotlight. Joining me now to talk about all of this is Tim Paget, the Americas editor at WLRN. Tim, welcome to Sundial. Hey, Danny. How are you doing? Doing great. So let's start off in, in Colombia. The leftist president uh, candidate that I mentioned, Gustavo Petro, he's really gained a lot of momentum in, in the past year and in, in months. Tell us a little bit, bit about Petro as a candidate and remind us of what his vision for the country moving forward is. Well, as you mentioned, he could be the first leftist president, uh, really, in, in, in the country's history. He's a former a leftist guerrilla, actually, uh, who he was an M, uh, a member of the M19 guerrilla army uh, during the uh, Colombia's half-century-long civil war. It's a guerrilla army that long ago disbanded and became a political party. And Petro has been a senator for many years now. He's also been a presidential candidate in the past, and he was, as you mentioned, in the past year, he has been the front runner in the polls, largely because Colombians are so. Uh, angry at right-wing governance in Colombia, its inability mainly to address the country's gaping economic inequality, which is some of the worst in the world, really. And that's what Petro has really been uh, taking advantage of. And as you mentioned also, he he was uh, the front runner in the first round of the election uh, last weekend. Uh, he's, he scored 40% of the vote, not enough. He needed 50% to avoid a runoff. And so we'll be seeing a runoff then on June 19th. And Petro will be going up against Rodolfo, Rodolfo Hernandez, uh, a, a businessman and former mayor. Um, what is Hernandez's vision for the future of Colombia? Well, first, we can't stress enough what a surprise this was. I mean, Rodolfo Hernandez just came out of nowhere. He's the former mayor of Bucaramanga, a, a mid-level city in, in Colombia. He's a 77-year-old sort of erratic populist. No one really 
thought of him as being Petro's rival in a runoff. That, that was supposed to go to a right-wing former mayor of Medellin named Federico Gutierrez. But in the first round, Gutierrez ends up getting only 24% of the vote. Rodolfo Hernandez ends up getting 24. And so he is now Petro's uh, rival in, in the runoff. And it's looking like the momentum is his. Uh, in a poll just out yesterday, um, it showed him and Petro neck and neck, in fact, with Rodolfo Hernandez ahead of Petro uh, by two points. And so one thing that's really been driving Colombian politics for the last couple of years is between 2019 and 2020, there was a wave of mass protests and unrest in Colombia that resulted in the military being deployed and at least 17 people getting killed by government forces that started to tank the numbers of the current president, Ivan Duque. Um, can you tell us about what was the, the root of that huge wave of protests, which is still forming the, the backdrop of what we're hearing in this election? Yeah, there are a few important factors there. One is that awful economic inequality that in Colombia that I just mentioned, which was really the root of the half century long civil war that I also mentioned, which started back in the 1960s. And I think a lot of Colombians were hoping that after the, the civil war ended in 2016, that the Colombian government would start instituting a lot of the economic, socioeconomic reforms that were in that peace plan. But it turns out the right wing in Colombia uh, represented, they're, they're known as Uribistas, represented by current president Ivan Duque, really weren't interested in instituting those reforms. In fact, they never really thought that a peace uh, agreement should have been struck uh, with, with the uh, leftist guerrillas in Colombia in the first place. By former so, President Santos, I would mention. Right. Uh, more of a centrist, really, than a right winger, what uh, right. Santos was. And so along comes the pandemic. And, and we all know what a terrible effect that had on the economies in Latin America, especially in Colombia. So that inequality that I mentioned just got worse during the pandemic until finally uh, Colombians anger about this just exploded. Uh, and, and as you mentioned in, in the past couple of years, we've seen very angry, sometimes violent street protests about that. And that's one of the major reasons I mentioned before that, that Petro has then been able to move ahead of the right wing in in Colombia because of that that um, that that voter anger in Colombia about the right wing uh, political class's inability or unwillingness really to to address that 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 economic suffering in Colombia. Right, he's he's kind of been able to harness that energy. Um, and a, a, so. a, opponents of Petro has painted him have painted him as almost a Hugo Chavez-like character who's going to turn Colombia into another Venezuela. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's driving that fear and what Petro himself has said about those worries? Well, first of all, because he's a former leftist guerrilla. That colors everything in, mm -hmm. in, in politics, especially here in, in South Florida. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a minute. Um, Petro has tried to make himself seem less of a radical leftists in the past few years in order to gain more of that centrist vote in Colombia that he would need to be, become president. Um, but still, there's there's a fear because Colombia is the next door neighbor to Venezuela. There's this fear that any leftist candidate could then be sort of absorbed by that what they call the Castro Chavismo uh, in, in uh, political wave in, in, in South America and Latin America. 
For example, he wants to really overhaul Colombia's pension system, which is largely a, a private driven pension system, much like what we have in the United States, sort of a, a big mix of public and private. Mm -hmm. He wants to he wants to turn the pension system more into a nationalized public system. And that has a lot of uh, people in Colombia worried that he could be going the, quote, socialista route. But in, in many other ways, he really hasn't uh, presented himself as a radical leftist. And, and one thing we haven't mentioned is he was the former mayor of, of Bogota, the capital of right. Colombia. And when he was mayor, he really did not show himself to be a, a, a radical. And so a few years ago, I really just happened to be across the street from the Colombian consulate in Coral Gables when Gustavo Petro was on the ballot um, against Ivan Duque. And there was people lined up to vote and I just started chatting with people. And what struck me at the time was that almost everyone I was talking to was voting for the more conservative candidate candidate. And that would be the current president, Ivan Duque. That's right. no matter if they identified as Republican or Democrat here in the U.S. They did not want Petro. Um, what do you think that that tells us about what kind of response we might see here from Colombians in the United States, in Florida, if Petro wins? And I'll just mention Colombians are the third largest Latino group in Florida after Cubans and Puerto Ricans. It's a very big population here. Exactly. And it's growing and it's and more and more of them are becoming voters. This this is the great Colombian expat paradox. Um, in, in fact, it's 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 assumed that more Colombian expat voters here are Democrat than Republican. They tend to be more centrist or liberal when it comes to U.S. politics. But when it comes to Colombian politics, much, much more conservative across the board. And that's because most of the expats here in this community are here in large part because they suffered some in some way at the hands of the leftist guerrillas in Colombia during the Civil War, whether it was kidnapping or, or, or someone killed, uh, that sort of thing. And that experience they brought with them here. And, and there's a great resentment, not only towards Marxist guerrillas like the FARC, which have also now disbanded in Colombia, but against anything that, that smacks of leftism or, or, or maybe socialismo. And as I said, that really colors how they how they approach Colombian politics. So I can almost guarantee you that even though the right wing candidate Federico Gutierrez is not going to the second round, you will see Colombian expats here shift their vote now to Rodolfo Hernandez, just as many conservatives in Colombia itself are doing. Um, this is the numbers are really not in Petro's favor right now, because, as I said, you had 24 percent of the electorate in Colombia in the first round voting for Gutierrez. Many, if not most of them, are probably going to be shifting to Rodolfo Hernandez. Add that to the 28 percent that Hernandez got in the first round. That spells a lot of trouble for Petro on June 19th. Got it. We're talking about developments in Latin America, like the potential of a leftist presidency in Colombia with Tim Paget, the America's editor for WLRN. You can find links to more of Tim's reporting on our social media at WLRN Sundial. So, Tim, I want to take a turn to, to Cuba now. There was two trials for leading dissidents in Cuba, artist Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara and rapper Michael Castillo. Those trials concluded this week. They were both part of the Mov Movimiento San Isidro, and they both played roles in the Patria y Vida song and music video. Um, really high-profile trials. What, what can you tell us about what those trials mean? Well, it means that they 
they are obsessed, meaning the Cuban regime, the communist regime in Cuba is obsessed with trying to tamp down this whole Patria y Vida movement. Patria y Vida meaning homeland and life, which is a, a sort of uh, uh, impish poke in the eye at the communist regime's motto of, of Patria y o Muerte, a homeland or death. And they, the regime knows that that anthem that was, that was composed a couple of years ago and became the protest song for these unprecedented demonstrations that we saw last summer in Cuba against the government, they know that they somehow have to neutralize that sort of thing in, in Cuba. And that was one of the big reasons we saw uh, Alcantara and, and, and Michael, uh, who's also known as Osorbo, Mm-hmm. Uh, go on trial this week. Uh, they were they were charged with you know the the, the usual sort of kangaroo court uh, charges you know uh, disrespect for authority, public disorder. When all they you know did was compose a song or take part in a protest or appear in the Patria Vida um, right. and, uh, video. And, and and you know these are two big names and really a, a historic wave of repression that's that's come after these protests and and July 11th. And and what's also notable about this is that. This is happening just after the Biden administration eased some restrictions for travel and sending remittances to Cuba, um, which angered a lot of Cuban Americans here. Um, is there any indication that anything will change on the island anytime soon um, politically? Well, this is always part and parcel of how the Cuban regime operates. It never wants to give the impression that it's giving something back when uh, a foe like the United States makes a gesture in its favor. Right. Uh, it's, it's got this idea that it always has to be, you know, the, 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 the hardest guy in the room. Untarnished right? and, in a way, in its own way. It, 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 exactly. And so there was some expectation that it, if the Biden administration loosened President Trump's restrictions on engagement with Cuba, that the Cuban government might, uh, sh- you know, show a little reciprocation not just with these trials, but with things like, for example, announcing that it would um, allow remittances from the United States, meaning the cash that Cuban families here send their relatives back in Cuba, that that would now be handled by some other entity than the military-led agency that usually processes those remittances and takes a big cut of it, which is a big issue here. Nobody wants the Cuban military to touch that money. And we haven't seen that yet either. So it's, um, again, the the old guard, the old meaning really old, the 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 octogenarians known as the historicos. I think you know, they're really digging in for some reason right now, and 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 not to their favor. And another thing that's very major that's happening soon in the Americas is that next week the Biden administration will be hosting the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. It'll only be the second time the U.S. hosts it after hosting the first one in Miami in 1994. What should we expect from this meeting? It's supposed to be a big meeting. It was supposed to be a big meeting, but there's a threat of boycotts hanging over the summit in Los Angeles, precisely because we were just talking about the fact that the United States uh, it looks as it has decided not to invite Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, the three really non-democratic dictatorial regimes in Latin America, because the Summit of the Americas is supposed to be a celebration of democracy in the hemisphere more than anything else. And one of the things that came out of that first summit that you just mentioned that was held here in Miami in 1994 was the Inter-American Charter 
which sort of expressly points out that if you're not a democratic government, you really don't deserve an invitation to the summit of the Americas. So it's not really like the Biden administration is doing anything right. radical here by not inviting what's what Trump called the Troika of tyranny um, in, in the hemisphere. But you've got a lot of leaders, particularly Mexican President uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who have this idea that every nation should be invited to the summit, regardless of their democratic complexions. And so you have several countries that feel this is an injustice and they're threatening to boycott the, and, the event. And including, I'll mention just Honduran President Xiomara Castro, who has mm-hmm. actually had warm relations with the U.S. after being elected. Um, and one of the main topics of this summit is about migration. So if the Mexican exactly. president doesn't go, the Honduran president doesn't go. I mean, those are two that that, that, that puts the U.S. in, in a a bind, actually, because those are two of the nations that, yeah. you know, we most need to talk about migration with. Well, and let's uh, let's all I think at this point, still, even Guatemalan president, he's not a leftist, but Guatemalan president, uh, he is also not uh, he has signaled that he will not attend because he feels insulted by the U.S.'s criticism of, of the way he's um, assaulted the, the judicial system in Guatemala. So we're looking at, you know, that Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, that is supposedly the Biden administration's chief project, meaning improving conditions in those countries so they won't send so many migrants to our southern border. If those three countries really aren't represented at the summit, yeah, that, that puts a crimp in that project. And, you know, this, I want, I want to go back to something that President Obama said when he kind of warmed relations with Cuba, which one of his takes was that the U.S. effectively, by taking this hardline stance against against Cuba and other countries, is actually not just isolating them. We end up isolating ourselves in our own hemisphere. Um, and then now we seem to be back in that similar kind of dynamic. Like, are, are we spinning in circles here or is, like what, what's what's going on with with U.S. policy? Because it, it's it clearly does have ramifications in some way. I call it Groundhog Day. We this you're right, spinning in circles, however you want to put it. And one of the things that, you know, we have to understand, I mean, look, no one argues that regimes like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua are are anti-democratic and very repressive. But what sometimes we don't understand in the United States is how the rest of the hemisphere views our relationship with a country like Cuba, regardless of whether Cuba is a repressive dictatorship. Um, they look at things like the embargo that we've slapped on Cuba for the past 60 plus years, and they see themselves. And so it, it's, it's hard to explain. They see in the way that the United States treats Cuba, the way the United States treats or, or, or has often treated the rest of the region. And the way, the way we throw our, throw our weight around. Exactly. And, 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 it, and it creates this uh, controversial, say, sympathetic bond between countries in Latin America that are otherwise democratic and, and, and capitalist, but it creates this sympathetic bond with Cuba that really throws a monkey wrench into the United States relationship with the rest of the hemisphere. Well, thank you, Tim. Tim Paget is the WLRN America's editor. Thanks for coming on, Tim. Thank you, Danny. Still to come on Sundial, farm workers in Immokalee are protesting with students at FAU for better conditions on the tomato fields. And now they have some results. (music) 
Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Farm workers and students have been protesting to try to get a Wendy's on Florida Atlantic University's campus to join a program that prevents labor abuse. It's an initiative in the, t- in the tomato industry. And after a sustained push to guarantee better labor practices for farm workers, one Wendy's on campus is staying closed for good. WLRN Palm Beach County reporter Wilkin Brutus has been covering what students want to see and the protest to move this initiative for farm workers forward. He joins us now on Sundial. Welcome to the show, Wilkin. Hey, Danny. Good to hear from you. Good to have you on. So, Wilkin, let's start with the timeline that led to this particular Wendy's location closing. When did students at FAU start asking the Wendy's chain questions about labor practices? Yeah, sure. Uh, Over the years, a human rights organization called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers have had success enlisting uh, college students across the country to advocate for worker rights and to protest against abuse on farms. And so in 2019, students at Florida Atlantic University joined that movement and they started urging the Wendy's franchise on FAU campus, I wanna make that point that it is a franchise, to join a program that advocates for worker rights on farms. And so fast forward to now, students in the Student Farm Worker Alliance, which is a national coalition uh, of students advocating under the coalition of Immokalee workers kept up that pressure, uh, which included their involvement in protests near the home of Wendy's board chairman, Nelson Peltz, in the town of Palm Beach, in that wealthy town of Palm Beach. And was Wendy's or this this Wendy's franchise, were they actively doing anything wrong? Well, Wendy's on campus just didn't budge. <laughs> and, and and then the pandemic happened. And so the, the students I've interviewed say the Wendy's uh, in the campus's food court has remained empty since the start of the pandemic. Right. Um, I think what I was trying to refer to is the, the, the fair food program that students and farm workers want this franchise to 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 participate in. Um, like. What what exactly is it? What what is Wendy's in this franchise not doing that students and farm workers want them to do? Sure. So uh, in 2019, I'll go back to 2019 here. The university's student government passed a resolution that recommended the removal of Wendy's on FAU's campus since Wendy's executives executives of the chain refused to join the fair food program. Um, other corporations such as Taco Bell, Walmart, Burger King. McDonald's and a few others have joined this particular program, uh, but there was no further action at the time in 2019 until now, just a month after that particular protest that I mentioned earlier. Uh, a Wendy spokesperson told me that the decision to close was made by a franchise operator for, quote, a variety of business reasons. And so that's the particular pressure that the students at the time and now were were putting on that particular Wendy's franchise. And for for farm workers, what kind of protections does the the fair food program provide for them? I mean, that's that's kind of at the center of this. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, it, it's it's a workers' rights initiative in the tomato industry that sort of aims to improve labor standards and protects workers from farm labor abuses such as wage theft and sexual abuse from supervisors. The program can also boost pay for farm workers. And, uh, you know, the program also urges corporate buyers like Taco Bell and Walmart, like I mentioned earlier, to pay an extra penny per pound of tomatoes. Right. And 
you know, I'll mention the 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 coalition of Immokalee workers have been at the the front of this, and they were at the forefront of a lot of battles in here in South Florida. You know, especially in the the early two thousands with Burger King, they successfully they successfully pushed the company to pay farmers one more cent per pound for tomatoes. It's a huge national movement, but it really took place here in in South Florida. Um, well, well, can I I want to ask you about a protest? This protest that you recently went to. Describe to me what you were hearing and what you were seeing. And, you know, this this took place on Palm Beach Island, which is a very wealthy community, probably not super accustomed to street protests. <laughs> right. To say the least. Right. Right. Uh, just the mere thought of me going to Palm Beach Island for a protest um, was quite confusing because I was born and raised in Palm Beach County. And so it was, it was quite interesting to me as well. So, you know, seeing current and former farm workers, students, religious leaders, all met up at Bradley Park, um, which is a park in, in the, I want to say, the northern part of Palm Beach Island. Um, and musicians played protest music. There was a live play that reenacted what it was like working on a farm, which was really interesting. It sort of illustrated some of the abuse, uh, such as the lack of water and shade, how supervisors leverage their power for wage theft, um, how supervisors use their power for sexual advancement, uh, uh, you know, against women uh, and, and people held protest signs of board chairman Nelson Peltz alongside the Wendy's logo. And after that, I want to say more than 400 people marched around five miles to protest. And it was quite interesting to see the class differences as, you know, people drove by. Uh, and so, yeah. And j- just to be clear for our, our listeners, we're not talking about any issues with the physical tomatoes that Wendy uses, the health of tomatoes, et cetera. Um, we're just talking about the practices that surround the workers who pick the tomatoes. Uh, Wilkin, can you tell us a little bit more about how Wendy's as a, as, as a chain, you know, it's one of the big fast food chains, the old, you know, the, the biggest fast food chain that hasn't signed on to these protections. Um, how have they responded to, to this protest movement? Yeah. So uh, Wendy's essentially said that the Wendy's on campus um, is, you know, they 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 decided not to join the fair food program because of the way in which that they farm, which is completely different from what the fair food program expects them to farm. And so uh, the Wendy spokesperson told me WLRN that the decision to close was made by a franchise operator for a variety of business reasons. And and so an FAU spokesperson said a steak and shake would not replace the Wendy's on that specific campus now. Quite a coincidence, I suppose. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm speaking with WLRN reporter Wilkin Brutus. He covers Palm Beach County for WLRN. And he's been covering this story about what led to a Wendy's fast food location closing for good at Florida Atlantic University's campus in Boca Raton. Uh, students and, and farm workers want to see more done for a food fat, for a fair food program. You can listen to Wilkin's feature story and find out more about that on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Also, you can and, check out a video reel on this story that we put on WLRN's Instagram. Wilkin, you're going. Yeah, my sorry. My, my apologies. I want to elaborate a little bit more on that previous question. So uh, in another statement to to me, Wendy said it relies on third party reviews of suppliers uh, for farm labor practices. And so the company said it does not participate in the fair food program because Wendy's North American tomatoes come from indoor greenhouses, not fields. And so I reached back out to them. And so a spokesperson for Wendy's argued that the change department from FAU was not related to student protests. 
FAU did not respond to questions about why Wendy's left and whether student activism played a role, um, again, which is very interesting considering that the protest was held in April and Wendy's left shortly afterwards. So, yeah, that was essentially their argument was that tomatoes come from uh, uh, indoor greenhouses and not fields. But the Immokalee for the Immokalee workers say that that doesn't matter. It's all about human rights at this point. And you mentioned that the, with the Wendy's closing its doors, that a steak and shake is, is going to come in and, and fill its place. Do we know if they have signed on to the food fair food program? That's the other interesting part about this story. Steak and Shake has not signed on to the fair food program, which obviously came as a surprise for many of the students. The students say it's especially odd considering that uh, Chartwells, which is the school's food provider, is supported uh, is a supporter of coalition of Immokalee workers and the fair food program. And so and Chartwells did not respond to my request for comment. Got it. And um is this just about what chains come on campus at FIU? I think it's a broader story about workers' rights and how workers are treated across farms across the country. Um, students that I've spoken to say it's not necessarily about what chains are on campus, as long as the practices on the farms are uh, based in human rights and that folks are getting paid uh, properly and that sexual harassment isn't um, an issue anymore. And so the, the broader challenge for a lot of the students is about making sure that the, the farm workers are treated well, uh, not necessarily about what actual businesses are on FAU's campus. And so they did say, however, that they won't protest against Steak and Shake, that they still want to add more pressure to Wendy's chair, uh, chairperson and Wendy's as a whole. And so I'm not quite sure if they're actually going to go ahead and, and protest against Steak and Shake. And just for our listeners sake, I'll just in context, um, you know, the state north of us, Georgia, they just a couple months ago, there were there were indictments, federal indictments where the federal government said that there were farms that were not participating in this fair food program that were running essentially modern day slavery. Um, I mean, that's the kind of worker protections that the people like the coalition of Immokalee workers are, are really trying to 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 prevent they, they don't want modern slavery i don't think anyone would say that they want modern slavery but what can oh, you absolutely what can you've been talking to to a lot of farm workers that are that are working on this what has stood out to you about what these farm workers say about this push sure and, and to elaborate a little bit more about what you just said you know for more than 20 years the coalition of immokalee workers has put worker rights in the forefront of their activism um which yes includes human trafficking, uh, promoting human rights and corporate supply chains and whatnot. Um, and so when I spoke to one of the CIW organizers, a woman by the name of Lupe Gonzalo, who worked in the tomato fields of Immokalee for years, and she described her poor upbringing and the instances uh, of, of, of how power dynamics between farm workers and supervisors work, those instances include sexual harassment, again, um, uh, issues of, of rape on the fields and, and how these these challenges have certainly affected people's livelihood and and how, quote, she has always demanded dignity whenever she worked in, in the farm fields. And so she was a very interesting person that I spoke to. And the interpreter, uh, Melody Gonzalez, is also a longtime human rights advocate uh, who worked as an interpreter for CIW and other human rights organizations for quite some time. And so those two women describe very vividly uh, gender issues um, and workers' rights issues. 
Got it. Well, um, I'd like to thank our guest, WLRN reporter Wilkin Brutus. He covers Palm Beach County for us and is doing a lot of reporting on the Fair Food Program. Wilkin, thanks for coming on and thanks for your reporting. Thank you, Danny. Still to come, do you hear buzzing? You're not crazy. We're talking about mosquitoes on Wildlife Thursday. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. You might have noticed it's a little more hot and a little more humid outside. Add some of this rainy weather and we have a perfect recipe for mosquitoes. Yep, that's the sound of them flying around when they're not right next to your ear. For this Wildlife Thursday, we're taking a look at these little pesky creatures that we love to hate in South Florida. Because here in South Florida, mosquito season is actually year-round. But with the rainy monsoon season upon us, more mosquitoes are being born. And that means more bug bites for us. Joining us now is Chalmers Vasquez. He's the research director for the Miami-Dade County Mosquito Control and Habitat Management Division to talk about mosquitoes. Chalmers, welcome to Sundial. Uh, thank you, Danny. My pleasure. So, Chalmers, what brought you here to what sometimes feels like the ground zero, the headquarters for, for mosquitoes in, in South Florida? And, and why do you have an interest in these creatures? Well, uh... I'm an entomologist by trade. So when I came to this country back in the early 80s, uh, sometime after, you know, I applied, it was a position uh, open in the Mosquito Control Division in Miami-Dade County, and I applied. And I've been here 31 years. And what is it about mosquitoes that, that <laughs> you know, what did... We live with them all the time. Like like we mentioned at the, at, at the top of this segment, they are probably the animal or the creature that we most deal with in our day-to-day lives. They buzz around us and whatnot. Um, why do they thrive so well here in South Florida? Well, remember, mosquitoes were here millions of years before us. So we are the, the one who came to their places. Uh, Florida is a is a it's flat, uh, tends to flood a lot, especially during the rainy season or high tides, and mosquitoes are reproduced in very high numbers, like unlike many other many other places. And can you give us a brief rundown of a mosquito's cycle of life? Um, and and like what changes when when it rains a lot? Because we're we're you know especially this weekend coming up, we're going to see a lot of well, rain. Yeah, rainfall. What rainfall does is to uh, create more habitat for these mosquitoes. Uh, we usually do uh, deal with two types of mosquitoes. Mosquitoes that breed in artificial containers or even natural containers like tree holes or bromeliads. And mosquitoes that breed in depression, uh, floodwater mosquitoes that breed in depression or low areas in the ground. Those are the two main mosquitoes. Actually, that the two mosquito species there. We have 52 species of mosquitoes in, in Miami-Dade County. Wow. 
which is a lot compared to other 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 places in the country. So, but we only deal with uh, a handful of them, which uh, they create uh, a lot of nuisance and transmit uh, disease, obviously, like the the infamous genera Aedes aegypti, which is the one that keep us busy uh, during the entire year. The other mosquitoes, the other mosquitoes, the floodwater mosquitoes, they only come around when the rainy season starts. Uh, you know, the rainy season with these mosquitoes runs parallel with the mosquito season. And so, I, I, I want us to, to take a moment to try to not make humans the center of the story. Um, because mm. like you mentioned, mosquitoes are part of the natural order of things here. They've been here for a really long time. So specifically when it comes to mosquitoes that are native here, that are not invasive, what role do they serve in our natural world ecosystem? Well, they they are in the, uh, in the food chain. Uh, they serve as food for uh, fish in the mangrove uh, areas. Uh, and they serve a food for, for bears and uh, other invertebrates that feed on mosquitoes. Uh, so that they part of, uh, part of the deal. And, you know, you, you've been involved in, you know, mosquito research and you, you have a longstanding interest in these creatures. Was there a moment for you when you realized that you really want to focus on them for your, for your career? Like, was there one particular moment where you said, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do? Well, you know, I, I saw the opportunities to uh, opportunity to come to work for mosquito control. And, you know, I needed a job at the time. Uh, so I have a uh, uh, background in entomology. So, you know, that uh, opportunity fit very well with me uh, to the point, you know, I said I, I've been 31 years in this. I'm close to retirement now. So uh, uh, it's been it's been a long time and we have we've done a lot of things over the years and uh, especially we have provided a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of relief uh, for, for the population of mosquitoes I mean of Miami-Dade County from mosquito bites especially mosquitoes that come from the Everglades National Park which you know affect you know thousands and thousands of acres and thousands and thousands of uh, area where we uh, spray from the They create a lot of nuisance, so uh, it is very, very, uh, it's very nice, I would say, that when you uh, do mosquito control, especially with an airplane, and uh, you go the next day and you don't see a single mosquito, say, oh my God, these people needed this help and they got it. So that it, it is very, it's very, uh, it's very, it's very uh, how do you call it? Uh, Rewarding? Rewarding. That's a war. It's so, very rewarding to do this. So, so Chalmers, I, w- I want to ask you, because when a lot of us think of invasive species, what comes to mind, what we talk about a lot is like pythons, iguanas, some plants, Brazilian peppers, things like that. Um, you mentioned that there are many kinds of mosquitoes that we have here in South Florida that are invasive. Do these different kinds of invasive mosquitoes pose different kinds of risks to humans? Other than the the ones that are here, you know, native. Well, yeah, the most important of this uh, invasive mosquitoes is Aedes aegypti, uh, which is a vector of uh, dengue fever, Zika, and uh, yellow fever. Yellow fever is a, a, a very fatal uh, type of disease. 
Uh, that's the main focus of attention for us. There are some other invasive mosquitoes. We just uh, reported in the uh, in the scientific uh, field a new mosquito that was found in, in South Florida. Uh, this mosquito is a vector of disease uh, in, in South America. Uh, it's found in other parts of the Caribbean, I believe, and uh, but hasn't been... Uh, connected to the transmission of any diseases in in this part of uh, of the of the country so we we, we keep uh, we keep an eye on those mosquitoes uh, all the time uh, you know we have a a uh, surveillance program uh, in this uh, division that where we monitor the mosquito population we gauge the mosquito population on a weekly basis throughout the year. We have a number of traps that we deploy to specific places. So that gives us an idea how the uh, mosquito population, uh, whether it's mosquito vector disease or mosquitoes that are just creating nuisance. So we have an idea what's going on. I'm speaking with Chalmers Vasquez. He's the research director for the Miami-Dade County Mosquito Control and Habitat Management Division. And we're talking to him because it's that kind of that time of year when we can expect a sharp rise in mosquitoes. You can find more information about Chalmers' work on our social media at WLRN Sundial. So Chalmers, um, you're actually you you were just talking about it a bit. You were you're working on a project to find new invasive species, and you you're using traps to catch mosquitoes. How do you catch a mosquito? I've tried, and it's pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, at this point, we're using uh, two types of traps. There is a number of, you know, a myriad of ways to collect mosquitoes. But for our purposes, um, monitoring the mosquito population in our county, uh, the, tra- the, the type of trap that we use in our program is uh, what is called the CDC Miniature Light Trap, you know, CDC uh, designed by the Centers for Disease and Control. Uh, we use that to monitor the flow water mosquitoes in the remote areas, which are normally going to be mosquitoes that come from the Everglades National Park, which is the, 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 the black salt marsh mosquito. And then we have uh, we use another trap, which is called the uh, BG Sentinel uh, 2 trap, which is a trap which is, uh, is, is manufactured by uh, Biogent uh, and it's a German company, German company. And uh, it's very effective. It's the standard for capturing mosquitoes, uh, especially Aedes albopictus and Aedes aegypti. Uh, but that they can collect, you know, any type of mosquito. So we bait these traps with uh, carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide attracts mosquitoes mm. because carbon dioxide is how we also attract mosquitoes. So we set up these traps uh, every week, uh, an average of 300 traps. Uh, specific places as i said wow and then we we the next day we go collect them bring them back to the office and we do a count by species and by numbers and we keep a a a, a very solid uh, database of how, how uh, what mosquito species and what places are 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 being are being you know uh mosquitoes are are, are, are the population is going is going high it's like right now uh, this is the onset. You know, we start seeing that the traps, the collection of the traps are a little bit more than a couple of months before. 
at this time of year? Uh, at this time of the year. So uh, and, and, this is so, an unstable. Mm -hmm. No, I, I was going to ask you, um, how can people protect themselves from mosquito-borne illnesses? Or, or for that matter, how can people prevent mosquitoes from breeding in their homes? Like, what are what are the top tips that, that people should know as we get well, into mosquito you know, season? The main, the main thing that mosquitoes need is water to breathe. So we need to reduce the amount of water, any container, any amount of water. Mosquitoes exploit very small uh, quantities of water. So if we have containers, uh, we need to make sure that those containers are not out in the yard collecting water because eventually those containers are going to be mosquito breeders. Uh, we have issues in this county uh, with bromeliads. I don't know if you, you're familiar with what bromeliads Like are. a pineapple or air plant? Yeah, kind of they are actually they're in the same family as the pineapple. Right. Uh, but these bromeliads, uh, they usually do not belong in this part of the, the world. You know, most of the bromeliads that you see are used as a landscaping plant in, in, in South Florida are imported, are exotic. Uh, people, people love them. And... Uh, and they like them around, so uh, but they need to make sure they treat those those uh, bromeliads because they're gonna they're gonna breed mosquitoes eventually when uh, when they fill up with water. So that's the most important part, which is you know need to reduce the the, the source of uh, this mosquito breeding. And the other the other part that like, uh, comes to me is uh, that uh, when you're gonna be out there, uh, you need to protect yourself. So it's, it's uh, what every all the time say you know use. Protective, uh, repellent, long sleeves, stripes stay away, uh, to stay inside when the mosquito population is high, and uh, it is it is protection. That, that's that's what you need. Uh, you know, you see our trucks, mm -hmm. mosquito, uh, our mosquito truck. They they breed, uh, drain and drain and cover. Right, and I, I was going to ask you about the some of the ways that the county kind of eliminates mosquitoes you do truck spraying aerial aerial spraying in some ways what should people know about these methods because there's always people that have questions about health or safety you know um side side effects or impacts of these treatments what should, right. what, what should uh, people know about this right uh we control mosquitoes in two ways you know we control mosquitoes in the larval stage in the immature stage and we control mosquitoes in the adult stage, which is a flying form of the mosquito. Uh, we uh, we rely very heavily in the uh, in the larviciding of, of the mosquito, you know, which is uh, apply a pesticide to kill the mosquito larva. Uh, we uh, target for Erysegipti specific areas uh, in the county. Uh, we we do control mosquitoes in Miami Beach. Uh, no, we have two areas in Miami Beach. We have a Wingwood. We have areas in Coral Gable. Normally, we try during the summer to target areas where there is a concentration of people or people get together to to eat, to drink, to party, you know. Right. You mentioned Wynwood and, and Miami Wing, Beach. Yeah, it's Miami kind Beach. of, sorry, you mentioned Wynwood and Miami Beach, which is kind of, touristy areas and th that, right. that 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 also leads me to you know those were two of the areas that were at the center of the the fight against the zika virus back in in, those, in 2016 and i wanted to ask you about that um those because two. because you you helped lead the fight against zika um 
did you learn anything from that experience that you applied to this work? Oh, today? We, 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 we learned a lot. Uh, and, you know, and to all honesty, we were not well prepared to uh, a situation like that. Like Zika. Uh, now, now we are, you know, a lot of things change in, in the mosquito control program. Uh, we have more staff. We have more equipment. We have a, uh, better knowledge of uh, how to control these mosquitoes. So it, it was a huge, huge learning experience for us. And we continue to strive, you know, uh, to get be better every, every time in control of these mosquitoes. It's not easy. Uh, Aedes aegypti is, is a beast, but uh, uh, we need to, to control. Uh, and the reason we, as I said, the reason we uh, target those areas where people coming from abroad, especially the Caribbean or Central and South America, may get together, may introduce one of these virus transmitted by mosquitoes. If we have a, a, a high mosquito population, somebody introduces, that's what happened with Zika virus in 2016. Right, it came from abroad. So we're we're, yeah. we're going to have to leave it there. Um, talk, right. Talking about mosquitoes of small but very deadly and mighty beasts that we're all too familiar with. I'd like to thank our guest, Chalmer Vasquez. He's the research director for the Miami-Dade County Mosquito Control and Habitat Management Division. Chalmers, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. And you can find more information about his work and preventative measures you can take to avoid mosquitoes from breeding at your home on our social media at WLRN Sundial. And that'll do it for Sundial this Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie Ovaya is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is our senior news editor. WLRN's interim program director and technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Engineering our board operations today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by Afro Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program by searching WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. And coming up next week on the program... We talked to a Miami-Dade student who suffered spinal cord injury at 16 that left him as a quadriplegic. And now he's using new technology and his mind to actually drive a race car. I'm Danny Rivero. Thank you so much for listening today. This program is made possible in part with support from the Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.